two weeks ago we were in this book. Last week we had our brother Rolof Virstan from the Netherlands uh, come and preach to us. And we come back to the book of Amos. For some reason I just turned away from it. Uh, Amos chapter 3. And last, uh, a couple of weeks ago we were considering what I called uh, Northern Kingdom Theology. That the Israelites had developed this idea uh, that they, because they were God's people, because they are of all the families of the world, they were the chosen people, that therefore, because they were so special, uh, the holy requirements of God didn't quite apply to them in the same way. That they were separated from all the other nations, but God would, in some way, because of this, treat them differently when it came to their own sin. In other words, if they sinned, uh, they would be treated uh, not like the pagans that they despised in the world, not like even the Judah, uh, the inhabitants of Judah, which if they didn't despise as much as they despised the, the world, their brethren, they despised them nonetheless uh, to a great extent because they were separated. But that God would, to them, would treat them differently because they were different, they were chosen, they were special. They despised everyone else but the, and the sinfulness of everyone else, but their own sinfulness kind of got a, a, a pass. That's their theology. That's how they thought that God's righteous requirements only applied to the others. And we saw that, didn't we, especially in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, as God comes to deal with them. And particularly, two weeks ago, we considered the verse 1 and 2. Out of all the families of the world, God says to them, I've chosen you, I've known you. And God there then says something terrifying. Therefore... I will visit you. I will punish you for uh, your iniquities. Far from uh, relieving them of their holy uh, require of the holy requirements of following after God. Far from that, the fact that they were God's people, the fact that God's name was upon them, uh, heightened their responsibility to walk in holy and righteous living before the Lord. It's precisely, God says, precisely because you're chosen, precisely because you're elect, precisely because I redeemed you from Egypt, precisely because of those things that now I'm coming to visit you. Because otherwise, you would be unrighteous of God in many ways, but especially because if they are God's people, if God's name is upon them, for them to go on sinning and God, for God not to do anything would make it seem like if God condones sin. God will not, as I said a couple of weeks ago, God will not have spoiled children. He will, will instruct them and he will, he will chastise his children to make them holy. That's the message that Amos was told to preach to the Israelites. And perhaps the reaction of the Israelites upon hearing these things is, really, is Amos really a prophet from God? He's not the first one that came. All the others, they came and mourned us, but we're still here. Everything is still fine. Does this, does this harsh message really apply to us? To us who God so loved so much that he took us out of Egypt, brought us through the wilderness, gave us this land? Does this message really apply to us? And that's where we left off. 
couple of weeks ago. And let me just turn again to Amos. I'm trying to turn to Amos while I'm preaching. Uh, multitasking, as I'm told, is not a, something that uh, men can do very well. Let me just turn there once again. Say, so, uh, there we go. And that's where we come in chapter 3, or in chapter 3, verse 3. The, perf the prophet now turns to de deal with the hardness of heart of the Israelites, their disbelief in the message. They didn't want to believe that Amos was speaking to them. They didn't want to believe that Amos was coming to them, let alone they didn't want to recognize their own sin. In fact, if they looked around, they probably did. They look around their, their, their surroundings and they say, look at how prosperous we are. Look at how much the Lord has blessed and, 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 and uh, prospered us. They were under the, the rule of King Jeroboam II, a military genius by any standard. He was also very capable economically and, and, and financially. The kingdom of Israel was experiencing a, a, a great boom. There was security. The, the neighboring nations, they were not threatening because they've won uh, many battles and wars. But yet Amos comes to deal with their hardness of heart. So verse 3 begins with a series of questions, a very unusual, curious way that Amos chose under the inspiration of the Spirit, to deal with the sin of the Israelites through this series of questions. And today we'll only look at the, at the questions up until verse 8. It's a series of nine questions. They all form pairs, except the first one. The first question, verse 3, stands alone, singled out. And that's how he starts. Can two, he asks, walk together unless they are agreed? All of these questions, by the way, before we move forward, all of these questions are meant to foster an agreement on the part of the Israelites. They're, they're obvious questions. They're almost rhetorical questions. Even a child is able to respond to these questions uh, clearly. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Of course not. But the point that Amos is trying to make here, and that's the, the overarching uh, main idea here, is that Nothing happens in the world unless something is behind it to cause it. For every action, there, for every effect, there is a cause. Everything that happens in this world has a cause. And Amos is saying, I'm not here prophesying to you for no reason. I'm not here telling you these things because I conjured them up in my mind. Look. Look at the actions and look at the consequences of the actions. And that's how Amos begins, walking together. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Literally, there is, unless they have met together. Unless they have come together, can two walk together? And the answer is not. The point that is clear that Amos is trying to make is that, and he's already foreshadowing what we'll consider next week, is that God and God's people are no longer walking together. They were walking together. There was a pact. They, they met together. Uh, and, and there was a, a, a covenant. Like in real world, if we are to go together somewhere, we need to 
meet together beforehand and establish a route, establish a, a destination, and then we start walking. And, it, and that is the case here between Israel and God. Not that they met together to establish these things, but there was an agreement, there was a covenant made between, uh, by God with Israel. Out of all the families of the earth, you only have I known. It was precisely because that God had chosen Israel, and it was precisely because of this that now God was going to come in judgment. You're saying that you're God's people, and indeed you are. But yet you're not walking in the ways of the Lord. You're saying you are, but look at where, where you're going, look at where the Lord wants you to go. And then we go to the next two questions. Again, the, the, the idea is causality here. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? And then the next two questions. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? And here again, it's that uh, very uh, choice kind of uh, desire on the part of Amos uh, to use lions. He was familiar with lions. Nowadays, there's no lions in the Middle East, but that's because of the Assyrian Empire who um, killed them all. But in those days, there were lions in the Middle East. If you go to the British Museum, you can still see some of those beautiful reliefs. Uh, well, nowadays, uh, people won't find them so beautiful because they depict the killing of lions, and it's usually the king uh, of the Assyrians standing strong and tall, killing those lions. That's what happened. But there were lions back there in the day. And the figure, which is probably Amos's favorite animal, is something that is very particular to him. He was a farmer, he was a sheep herder, he was a shepherd, and he knew about the danger of lions, and he had seen them in the wild. And, the, and probably all of Amos's audience would know this, even the children. Well, if a lion is roaring in the forest, it's because he has caught a prey. Now, the Bible is not a zoology, uh, zoology book. It's not meant to convey uh, biological uh, zoology truths, but this is exactly the, the behavior of lions. They are very quiet, very uh, subtle, up until the moment that they pounce on the victim. And after they capture the, the victim, you see this even in the lions in the, in the savanna in Africa, they then start roaring. Some biologists say it's because they're releasing uh, uh, their satisfaction, their adrenaline. Uh, others say they're communicating with other members of the pack to tell them that there is food, that the dinner is ready. But that's what they do. They pounce, they catch, and then they roar. And here uh, it's told us twice. A young a lion in the forest and a young lion, which conveys the sense of a strong lion, a, a lion that is in its youth, in its prime cries out of his den as he's eating. Amos knew about this. I'm sure he had heard it time and time again as he was there in Tekoa, in the, in the wilderness, in the edge of the wilderness. So often he heard the lions roar because they have caught a prey. There is a cause for the lion's roar, Amos says. And that cause is because he caught something in his claws. And the same thing then happens in verse 5, the, the fourth and the fifth question. Again, a pair. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth 
where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing? Again, cause effect. If a bird falls into a snare, this is obvious, but if a bird falls into a snare, someone must have set it. Again, language that any countryman, any uh, country-dwelling person would be uh, familiar with. And I'm sure Amos, in his own day, as a shepherd, at times he set traps to catch uh, birds or small animals. And what he's saying is that if there is a trap, and if a bird falls on it, will no one have set it? Or if you hear a, a, a trap snapping up in the air, springing up from the earth, is it because he has caught nothing? No, it's because something set it, and it's because something uh, triggered it. Again, cause and effect. What is Amos's point? That's the th where we see, we see Amos's point in the third set of questions. Verse 6, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will, in, will not the people be afraid? This relates to an invasion of a city. And now Amos, kind of like in chapter 1 into chapter 2, Amos, through his language, is inching closer to the point that God is trying to make. You remember this happened in chapter 1 as Amos goes from nation to nation pronouncing judgment, but it seems like he's rushing to get to a closer and closer to, to the main nation that is getting judgment, which is Israel. Here, it's the same thing seems to happen. Every, the question seems to be inching closer, but now it's the city that is afraid. It's getting closer. Will anyone blow a trumpet in a city? The trumpet of alarm? If the, in, and the inhabitants will not be afraid? The shofar, that the horn that they, uh, that they used to blow uh, when the enemy armies were approaching or, were, or when some kind of cataclysmic uh, uh, event was uh, approaching. As, as danger was at the door, you would hear it, perhaps very reminiscent uh, uh, in this city uh, where we are today. Uh, about 85 years ago, with the blitz, you would hear the sirens and people would shudder and tremble because they knew in the next, I don't know how many, I'm sure someone will, uh, will tell me, but in the next 10, 15 minutes, we're going uh, to get bombed. Run for shelter. Find a place. The people only tremble because the shofar sounded. Again, cause and consequence. And then it leads us to that final question of, the, of this third set. If there is calamity in the city... Will not the Lord have done it? Will any calamity befall a city if the Lord has not sent it? If you're reading from the AV, uh, you will read there, is, if there is any evil in the, in the city, will not the Lord have done it? And here, let me just take a small aside uh, and, uh, and comment on the, on the use of the word evil in the Old Testament, because some people get caught up uh, in, in this, particularly in Isaiah uh, 47, I believe, where, where God says that he is the one that brings peace and brings evil, or creates peace and creates evil. So in the Old Testament, you have two senses for the word evil. There's the one sense of moral, uh, reprehensible evil, 
when the Lord says that the people are pursuing evil things, that's morally wrong, but evil can also mean something of, of a cataclysm, uh, something of a, uh, how the, the translators here uh, translated in the New King James, a calamity. And in this sense, God is the one who creates those calamities, who sends them. The, these misfortunes, these uh, cataclysmic events, it's the Lord that sends it. It's not that God creates evil in, in the moral sense, but God sends these evil uh, circumstances, these difficult circumstances in his decree. It is God who does it. It's not chance. That's what Amos is trying to say. The things that happen, brothers and sisters, they're not chance. We need to look at the circumstances and interpret them through the lens of scripture and understand that behind them there is a sovereign God who orders everything. That not a single molecule in this universe is rebellious to him. In fact, the only thing that is rebellious to God uh, is our own selves. We'll jump verse 7 because I'll, I'll, I'll come to verse 7 as we conclude. But there's another set of questions. Verse 8. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The prophet takes up this figure of a roaring lion again. Who will not fear if the lion has roared? Again, Amos has already mentioned that God is roaring from Zion, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 1 or 2, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion, answers his voice from Jerusalem. You don't want to listen. That's what, that's what Amos is saying. Why do you want to listen to me? The Lord is roaring. The lion is roaring. And if the Lord God has spoken, and I'm prophesying, who can but prophesy? That's cause consequence. I'm here prophesying because God has caused me to prophesy to you. It's God's determination. Because God does nothing. Let's go to verse 7. Unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. That is the point that Amos is trying to make here. And this is a brief, brief exposition of this. Amos is trying to convict the, the hearers in Israel that they are hearing this message because God has caused it. He uses all of these questions to convict them that there is a cause, there is a consequence. And that's why they have to repent. But the question now is, how does this whole thing apply to us? Well, we could all just, just dismiss a message of judgment, say that this only applies to the Old Testament, and the God in the New Testament is completely different. We live in the, in the interim of grace, and no longer these uh, passages of punishment and judgment apply. But that's not how we understand God, is it? He's the one who never, doesn't change. We could apply this, perhaps, to the nation at large and say, oh, well, in this case, uh, yes, there are calamities coming upon the UK, the West, America, and all these things have a cause and a consequence. But that doesn't really do much for us, does it? Because I'm not preaching to them. I'm preaching to us. Well, the first thing that this passage teaches us 
by that good and necessary consequence, by that equivalency from the Old Testament to the New, is that we have responsibility over our actions. That punishment comes upon us because we are responsible for our own selves. Will two walk together unless they are agreed? God's aim had always been that his people would walk together with him, that they would walk in those holy, righteous paths that God has set for his people. And yet they deviate, they wander off. And we too, we wander off. And we're responsible for that wandering off. And if punishment, or if in our case, chastisement comes our way, it is not because God is mean. It's because God is loving. Because we have strength. A second lesson that we take from this is to learn of the truthfulness and the seriousness of preaching. Amos is not simply just speaking uh, empty threats here. Uh, that's, that's perhaps the way that some of us will, will want to take this kind of, yeah, but it doesn't apply to us. These are empty threats. These are uh, unreasonable uh, words. But the language that Amos uses here is of the seriousness of the situation when God speaks, that we are to take it seriously. God is the one who roars. God is the one who sets the trap. God is the one who sends the army to invade the city. God is the one who sends the calamity, who does it. Yes, it also reveals something of the heart of God, and I don't want to take that away, because God, when he speaks of judgment, is always to provide an opportunity to repentance. When judgment is announced, it's always with a, an eye to the repentance of those who hear about the punishment to come. Again, God only uh, does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets, in order that they would repent. As we read this, uh, this evening already in, in 2 Peter 3, 9, God desires for his people that they would repent and not perish. And it is through the warnings, it is through those truths speak, spoken in love on the part of God that he forces us into the way. A third and a final lesson that we learn from this, before I draw a few applications, is that nothing happens by chance. And I need to be careful here, because I've met a few people who are a little bit on the extreme in, in applying this, this teaching, the law of causality in spiritual terms. We know about the law of causality in, in, uh, in, the, wo in the world. Scientists, they use the law of causality to, to do science, but the law of causality also applies in spiritual terms. But some people, at times, they overdo it, and they want to read uh, too much into things. Just because a, um, a frowning providence comes, does it mean that God is punishing you? Don't read always that. 
Sometimes it might be that the Lord is chastising you, yes. Sometimes it might be that just the Lord, as we will sing in, the, in our final hymn, that the Lord is causing you to grow in faith and love and every grace, as we'll sing. But the lesson is on the, on the, nonetheless important for us, that nothing happens by chance. For everything that occurs in our life, there is a cause. Ultimately, the cause is God in his sovereign decree. And often, those trials that he sends our way is to lead us to repentance. A few years, maybe I think five decades later, after Amos preached uh, this passage, or preached this sermon that is recorded for us in this passage, the Assyrians came and they invaded the northern kingdom and they took them away. And they were led away. Upon that time, it was another prophet that God had called to prophesy. It was the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah speaks of, of this. He says, the instant I speak concerning a nation, speaking of God, the, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up or pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, here again, it's the moral evil. I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. That is the case uh, with the Ninevites in the days of Jonah. God sends Jonah to them with a message of punishment and judgment. They repent and God relents. And that's anthropomorphic language, by the way. God does not change his mind. But God relents. That's the way we understand, uh, to, for us to understand. God relents from, from that punishment upon the Ninevites at that time. The Lord and the Lord, he had not yet attacked, but the roar caused them to fear. They turned, and the Lord uh, withdrew that punishment. At the time that the Israelites were taken into captivity, Jeremiah says this, Israel is like scattered sheep, the lions driven, driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him, now at last this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has, bro has broken his bones. Same language that, that Amos is, use, uh, is using here. Brothers and sisters, the reality is many people go astray. And it's not for lack of warning. It's not for lack of God pleading with them in his word, in the preaching of God's uh, word in the, in the Lord's day. It's not for, for lack of a forewarning. Church history is filled, lettered with people and, uh, and with groups of people who were forewarned in sermons, who heard about God's love, holiness, judgment, and yet they turned a deaf ear. They thought, well, this message really applies to those others, to those other uh, heathens, it applies to those other people, not to us. We're special. I recently heard this story. It's, it's, it, I would say it's a funny story if it wasn't tragic. Uh, a deaf lady, she has a ministry uh, to the deaf. Or a, no, a lady that has a ministry to the deaf. She does sign language in, in, in churches. And she was invited by the pastor of this big congregation to come and, and do the, 
uh, a conference or something, a special event, to come and do sign language in the special event. And the lady asked the, the pastor, how many deaf people do you have in your congregation, pastor? And he said, well, about 500 people. The whole congregation seems to be deaf at times. It is funny, but it's tragic. They hear, they hear, they hear, but they don't put it into practice. Now, I'm not saying that, I hope that most of you are not deaf, but sometimes that's how we can be. We hear it, but we don't want to heed the word of God. Certainly, this message is not for me. There, someone in Amos's day would say, oh, it's, it for, it's for, for Simeon uh, from around the corner. It's for, for Joseph down the street. But it's, it's for Miriam uh, uh, on the other side of town. But it's not for me, Amos. I'm good enough. But Amos is saying, no, it is for you. If the message is being delivered, if the trumpet is being sounded, if the call to repentance is being given, you better repent because God reveals his plans to the prophets as not only uh, not only as a guarantee that these things will happen so that then when they happen they will know that this was forewarned but also also as a uh, as an opportunity a, t a day of opportunity to repent one preacher uh, commenting on this passage, and I'll, I'll read his comment here because I think it is this, uh, that is uh, particularly pointed, and I'll hide myself behind the, the fact that it was another person that said it, um, but nonetheless it is true. He says this, consider the church in Amos's day. It was desperately needy, and though all unconscious of that fact, it was threatened by the imminent displeasure of its God. It lacked true knowledge, true spirituality. It lacked true repentance. It was full of corruption. It departed from the truth, perhaps not in lip, but in their experience. They only paid lip service. It was a proud, complacent, and self-satisfied church. It set itself on a pedestal and despise the world and their brethren in the kingdom of Judah. Yet their own condition would have caused any to uh, looking at that church in the Old Testament in Amos's day and say, oh, that revival would come. Oh, that God would send revival upon them. And yet God did something. He did not send revival in the, in the Pentecostal term, he sent his servant, Amos, to preach his word. And that's how God uses his ordinary means of grace. You hear the word, you apply the word. And you might say, yeah, 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 but we don't have prophets today. No, we don't. We don't have prophets today, but we have the word of God. As Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it is in the word of God that the, 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 the message of the prophets is established. It is in the, in, the, in the word of God, in the written word of God, that the message of the prophets is confirmed. Yes, we do not have prophets these days, but we have better yet. And I have the opportunity to say to you, this is what the word of God says this evening. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, that I will stand before the Lord in the great judgment day and have to give an account for what I say here today, 
I have no, no doubts in my mind of that. We too, as a church, individually and as a church, will have to stand before the Lord on that great judgment day and give an account for how we handled the exhortations that we heard. But make no mistake, the Lord does not uh, tarry. The Lord does not, uh, is not aloof to these things. Today we don't have prophets like Amos. But the Lord does send us his revealed truth in, a, in written form. We have it in our lives. So often we are, take it for granted. And we have it in, the, in our pulpits, in our churches. When God wants to speak and intervene, he speaks a word of warning. When God wants to intervene, he speaks a word of warning. And on this occasion, he spoke through Amos, a real man from a real time, with real thoughts, with real experience, through his words, but without error, he inspired them to say these words. And he stood there in the squares of, of Samaria and of Bethel and perhaps up and down the nation of Israel. And he proclaimed them out loud that everyone would hear. He says, the lion roars, who will not fear? And for us, he says the same thing through the inspiration of scripture, as it applies to us this day, he says, the lion roared. Will you fear? Will you turn in repentance? Will you seize the moment this, morning, this evening to repent of your sins, to return to walking together with the Lord? to stop with this spiritual complacency that we, you've devolved and eroded into. The word is, of God is as clear today as it was in the days of my Amos. Perhaps I would even say the word of God is clearer today than it was in the days of Amos. Do not be deceived. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the same way that God was not mocked in the days of Amos, God is not mocked in our own day. For whatever you sow, you will reap. For every cause, there is a consequence. For every action, there is a reaction. That is the message of Amos and is the message of God to us. But I'll say this in closing, because I don't want to be ungracious from the pulpit, because I do realize we live on this side of the cross. The only reason why we have no reason to fear, those of us who are in Christ have no reason to fear the judgment of God, is because God has sent his most gracious promise and gift to us. It is only because of Jesus that we can hear these words and not sink down into despair. Because the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, took away that punishment. But let us not be like the Northern Kingdom citizens. They also had the sacrifices and they trusted those sacrifices, but their trust of those sacrifices gave them a license to sin because you, tr you say you trust in Christ. Don't allow that to be a license to go on sinning. No, use that as a catalyst 
to humble yourself before the Lord, to commit yourself to Him. The only reason why we can stand before Him is because Christ stood in for us on that cross. The only reason why we can even make an appearance before the Lord this evening is because Christ on that cross, all this judgment that is spoken of in the prophets was taken by him. And anyone who is not sheltered in Christ, living in and for Christ, the inevitable judgment is coming. So let us all work out, as Paul himself says, work out our fear, or work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to do and to, to will. And let us serve the Lord, our, Je our Lord Jesus Christ, it is because it is only because of him that we will avoid the coming.